Rainmaker FM. And welcome back to another special edition of The Writer Files called The Best of the Writer's Brain. A series neuroscientist Michael Gripko and I started in 2015 when I enlisted his help to give us a tour of the inner workings of the writer's process. Have you ever wondered why writer's block is such a widely disputed malady, if it's curable or even real? As we wrap up our summer hiatus before the upcoming season, I thought I'd put all of these enlightening episodes in one place. And in part four of the series, research scientist Michael Gribko of the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington came back to the show to help me pinpoint some possible origins and solutions to an ailment known only to writers. In this file, Michael and I discuss why writers argue about the definition of writer's block, what happens when your creativity dries up, why writers need to unplug to recharge, three symptoms of writer's block and how to cure them, how small attainable goals reward your brain, Hemingway's personal tricks for getting words onto the page, and the importance of regular rituals for eliminating self-doubt. And if you missed the first three episodes of The Best of the Writer's Brain, you can find those on writerfiles.fm, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you tune in. Cheers. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And we are rolling on the writer files once again with the illustrious Michael Gripko. Thank you so much for taking time out to rap with me about the dreaded writer's block, something that we have talked about um, in the past, but never really discussed from a scientific standpoint. Right. Yeah. Another exciting topic. And it's my pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am really interested to get into this and and pick your brain about it. It's a question that I ask writers on the show, authors on the show, you know, just kind of if they believe in it. And I have asked in the past kind of like how, how they deal with it. And I think it's a contested subject. It really is. Um, it's something that it, it's almost like there's a dividing line. Like there's the, the writers that don't believe in it. They're like, ah, it's not a thing. And then there are writers that um, do believe in it or have, or believe in it because they know somebody's had it or, or, or they just um, kind of uh, empathize right, right. <laughs> with those who have had it, but they've never had it themselves. And that's not surprising. Um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a lot of individual differences, a lot of personality differences. Yeah. And as we'll get into later, you know, these, these may affect how prone someone is to being blocked. So yeah, yeah it's not, it's not surprising to see all these discrepancies here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to kind of kick it off, I mean, one uh, piece that you and I have passed back and forth 
was a New Yorker piece that Maria Konnikova wrote titled How to Beat Writer's Block. And what I found most interesting about this um, was kind of the origins of the term writer's block. Um, she had kind of tracked down to this Freudian psychiatrist named Edmund Bergler, B-E-R-G-L-E-R, who had studied writers for a couple decades and came to some pretty interesting conclusions. And in 1950, he published a paper called Does Writer's Block Exist? In a journal founded by Freud, it, it appears. And he, you know, came to some really interesting conclusions, which I think you will confirm, you know, just to kind of go back to that dividing line, you know, from Toni Morrison to uh, Joyce Carol Oates, a lot of famous writers have argued about writer's block itself, but, but never really can define it. So I think, you know, Ms. Morrison told her students that writer's block should be respected. Like it was a thing not to try to write through it. Ms. Oates believed that it didn't exist, but admitted that when you're trying to do something prematurely, it just won't come out. Like certain subjects need time. They need uh, marination, if you will, uh, before they can be written about. And then, you know, on on the far end of the spectrum, we've got writers like Stephen Pressfield, you know, from his classic War of Art that, that kind of, likens it more to a supernatural force inside of the writer uh, <laughs> called resistance, which I love. I mean, I think, I think it's a great uh, kind of an idea, um, but it's this repelling force that, that keeps us away or distracts us from our work. Writers just, you know, aren't all, aren't all on the same page. Um, but now science is kind of offering us a, a glimpse of what's going on inside the writer's brain again. Again, like I said, I, you know, it's, it's not surprising. There's all these different viewpoints. Um, and that kind of gets to the heart of writer's block. Um, it is a personal issue and there's different moods and we'll get into some of that. And I think there's a lot of reasons for writer's block. Um, one, and some of them really aren't even a neuroscience problem or are hard to touch on. And I think one, you know, just not having enough time, that happens. We can't just can't get to something. And then sometimes I think another thing, maybe we're just not even interested in the topic and then it can be hard to write about or work on if we lose our passion. Um, So those are things I think are hard to touch on or not too interesting from the neuroscience perspective. But one of the causes for writer's block that we may be able to get into from a neuroscience perspective is this loss in creativity. Mm, And, you know, we had an episode on creativity and we kind of defined creativity as as an idea that's novel, good, and useful. Right. And so for this episode, I thought, well, what happens when the creative process breaks down um, and we have a deficit of creativity? Yeah. And what can lead to that? And what are some of the, what's going on in the neurons that may, may facilitate or, or uh, writer's block or a deficit Right, 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 right. <laughs> there you go. So, um, exactly. Yeah. And I'll link to that creativity episode. In fact, I'll link to, um, the other, um, all three of the, the all right. neuroscience writers files that we've done. And you said in that particular episode, you said, um, you were talking about this particular area called the caudate nucleus that's active during writing. Right. Um, can you, can you just kind of touch on that again or, can we revisit uh, what that does for us? Right. So this was, yeah, we, I think this was one of the articles. Was it in the New Yorker that, that you turned me on to? Um, but writers were being compared to pro athletes. I forgot what, 
Yeah, right? yeah, from, I think it was a New York yeah. Times article. New York Times, okay. And and yeah, I went back to the original research, and they showed that this area in the brain called the caudate nucleus was active in writers when they were doing their thing, and this was a similar area, um, or this area was shown to be active in um, things like athletes, piano players. Yeah. Um, so that was a little surprising um, to the researchers. But I don't think it's, it's all that surprising when you pull away from things a bit and um, think about how the brain works. So I want to kind of go back and talk about creativity again. Yeah, please. And again, it'll be good that you link to the, the old episode so we don't have to go over everything again. But right. So one of the things we talked about in creativity is how knowledge is stored and information is stored in the brain. And briefly, knowledge really isn't, stored like in a neuron. One neuron doesn't hold a piece of information. It's, it's represented, knowledge is represented as a group of neurons and how they behave both temporally and spatially. So it's the firing of large numbers of neurons which represents certain information and knowledge. Yeah. Now the brain has been broken up into a lot of different regions and we've kind of attach some functionality to these regions. For instance, hippocampus um, is known for, for memory, spatial memory, uh, prefrontal cortex, kind of executive function. Um, cerebellum has been linked to movement. And although there is functionality to these, these areas, it's not just these areas that control that aspect of a behavior. And all these areas are connected with one another, um, albeit some of these are connections are indirect, but ultimately the brain is one organ. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a linear set of processes that happens to um, lead to a behavior. So this being said, this is really sets the framework that allows us to be creative. This, um, this kind of firing pattern in areas that fluctuates as behaviors change. And it's this kind of aspect of brain function that makes us associative learners and allows us to recognize these relationships between disparately connected items, sure. which is really the, the, the hallmark of being creative. So unfortunately, this connectedness can kind of have a downside, and I think <laughs> that's what also leads to being to writer's block. So, for instance, our emotions can impact our productivity on a task. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other, you know, there's post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injuries, and they, although they may impact specifically one area of the brain, that may end up, because of this connectedness, that may end up having widespread effects and affect our behavior and our ability to perform on other tasks. So, you know, when an activity in the area of brain that is responsible for processing information we need to write effectively then we may end up with writer's block. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the kind of the million dollar question for you. Um, how do we how do we avoid that? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh boy, big Drum moment. Roll, please. I, I'm responsible now. <laughs> no, um, I know. I know there are lots of facets to this, and and there honestly, are, yeah. like some of it. Um, 
is a little over my head. Okay, way over my head. But uh, it does make a lot of sense that, um, you know, there's not just one cause and or effect, um, but there's lots of stuff going on. So, so how, yes, what are some of the things um, that we can kind of touch on in this <laughs> okay, well, session me, without yeah. talking for eight hours? Yeah, for me, for what I do, I look at um, how neurons behave with certain behaviors. That's, yeah. that's my training is. So that's on these topics. That's what I like to look for is um, what are some possible neuronal mechanisms behind these these behaviors and these these things we see. For sure. So when I started thinking about this, one of the things I came up with was time management. We started off talking about well. One aspect of time management is just making sure we have enough time in the day to do all the things we need to get done. And if you don't have enough time to get to the writing, you just don't get to it. And that's something we really can't deal with. <laughs> I can't from a neuroscience perspective. That's a scheduling issue. You have to go talk to your boss or something. And I don't know. Um, but there is one aspect of time management I think gets overlooked a lot when people are putting their schedules together, you know, getting there filling out their Google calendars, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's not only making sure we have enough time to get all the things we need to do done in a day or get to, but also making sure we're doing things at the appropriate time. Yeah. And I think this really gets overlooked um, because there's, there's quite a bit of research out there showing neuronal activity patterns are influenced by environmental factors that are out of our control. Right. Um, a great example of this is something a lot of people know about, and that's the circadian rhythm. You know, also, yep. also called sleep-wake cycle, light-dark cycle, and obvious example, at night we sleep, at day we're awake, you know, and at the light. Yep. But I think what people don't realize is that throughout the day, even though we're awake, there could be specific times within the day, the changes fluctuate over time, there could be specific tasks that we're better at at certain times of the day. Just to kind of touch on that a little bit as you're getting into it, let's see, uh, Maria Popova um, did a, uh, a really pretty cool collaboration with an artist called Famous Writers Sleep Habits and Literary Pro- Productivity. And although all the writers have different kind of sleep patterns, a lot of them were very prolific. Uh, mm-hmm. They had just figured out their circadian rhythms is what I'm assuming. Right. right. Yeah. And this is, well, we're getting back to an area where we're going to see a lot of individual differences. Um, yeah. yeah, not surprising. People are going to have different habits. And although they may be for- performing a similar task, someone may be a morning person, someone may be a night person. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's evidence from, from, there's some experimental evidence to support this. And circadian rhythms are, are studied pretty extensively. And, there's, and this is just one example of the rhythms that happen in our brain, this oscillatory behavior. And but we'll just stick to the circadian rhythms. Um, so back in like the early 90s, a group, I think it's Hoffman and Balshun, showed that mice acquired knowledge needed to navigate a maze faster during the dark phase of the light-dark cycle. And mice are nocturnal, so that's not too surprising. Yeah. But then another group, um, led by Cowell in UCLA, kind of showed a different type of memory, this tone-associated fear conditioning, hmm. was acquired more rapidly in the light phase. But then they also went to show that 
the recall of this memory, this tone-associated um, fear conditioning, was more pronounced during the day as well. So this is really interesting. So it's, it's pointing to this idea that it's not just generally we're more alert at a certain point of the day, but it could be task-specific. And gaining knowledge and recalling knowledge, we may be better at these things at different times in the day. Mm-hmm. So for a writer, I'm thinking, you know, really take a look at, sort of self-reflect, take a look at your yeah. habits and what are the best times for you to do certain tasks during the day? And maybe researching a topic, there may be a certain time of day where research is good for you. And maybe later in the day, a different time when actually writing about it may be different. Exactly. May, or you may be more proficient at it. So, um, yeah, do a little self-reflecting and keep this in mind. And um, this may help stave off writer's block if, if you're not doing the appropriate task at the appropriate time. Yep. You, know, you may not be your most productive. Yeah, so. absolutely. You know, different different writers research uh, better and more effectively, kind of first thing in the morning. Some and some writers are sleeping during that time. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I've interviewed lots of writers, and it, they all have seem to have this kind of different scheduling mechanism ability to really focus and and find um, flow at different times. I'm I'm thinking of Dean Wesley Smith prolific, prolific sci-fi writer who doesn't really get started until, you know, late, late in the evening when things are quiet. Um, kind of like Balzac, for instance. Okay. Um, late night writers. And then some of these writers who, you know, only can only, some of these journalists, for instance, can, can only find that same quiet, like first thing in the morning, like right at dawn. Um, right. A lot of famous writers have had that. So, so yeah, tune in and figure out what your schedule is and, and, when you're most productive, that can be a very important aspect to uh, avoiding writer's block. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about multitasking and uh, a term given to some entrepreneurs and uh, writers, the workaholic. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more evidence that these things are not good for us. <laughs> right. I identify, I identify a little bit with the kind of the workaholic thing. And I'm definitely somebody who, you know, when I get into a bad space, can multitask terribly and effectively. But I think I'm getting stuff done. Right, right, right. Um, you know, I'm not sure of the neurological basis for this. I mean, there's, there is a lot coming out now about just how much an individual can work and be productive. And and there does seem to be a point where we're still working a lot, but really not doing much. Um, Yeah, yeah. uh, And even though we think we are, we're we're a lot of times doing more harm than good. This is unfortunately a really complex behavior, and it's hard to find an animal model for this. Animals generally aren't workaholics. Like, you don't see the mouse still trying to figure out the maze usually like they usually yeah. just quit they, they they're quick to throw in the towel or like no yeah too well, complicated i'm done that probably goes without saying that <laughs> that um that kind of behavior is gonna affect other other parts of your life negatively yeah absolutely. um relationships for instance you need some work-life balance probably so there's gonna be yeah i think so and and i think getting off topic is very important for a while, um, having something to do outside of work. Um, Absolutely. Downtime, I think is yeah, what you're downtime. doing. Yeah, downtime. 
but also having your downtime be active, having some hobbies there still engaging. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I did want to just touch back quickly on um, something that I know has been <laughs> uh, a topic of, um, you know, that's been bandied back and forth. And it's something I know that some of my coworkers do and they take a nap during the middle of the day and, but you know, most of them work remotely. So that's like they work at home and right. they can do that. And I'm seeing more and more evidence that, you know, some of these bigger, um, kind of more enlightened tech companies are offering things like sleep pods and places right, for right. employees to take naps around the office because you know what, it's been shown to boost productivity. Right. That probably fits right back into that circadian. Yeah, and, and just the benefits of sleep. Again, we don't know exactly what's going on. Sleep's, sleep's really important. It's a hard topic to discover at the, or to explore at the neurological level because you know, we have to be able to peer into side, inside an individual's head. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do, to look inside someone's head, an individual's head, while they're sleeping because <laughs> most methods are are prohibitive to sleep. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, it's, you know, we're starting to get there and, and we're starting to understand some of the, some of the changes that happen to the brain and the benefits of sleeping. Yeah. And, and then I think a lot of this is also just our society is changing and our habits are changing with the internet. Like you said, now we can work from home a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. The, the work day isn't nine to five really anymore. And, you know, people work, late at night, but then they take breaks during the day and this is being accepted. So yeah, there's a lot of cultural shifts that are happening as well. And I think, yeah, we'll see how it goes, but it's giving people a lot more freedom. And, and now, since we're not crammed into that, those banker's hours of when we have to be productive, maybe we can start being productive during times when it's best for us. Yeah. And we're not confined to the office anymore in the office hours, so. Absolutely. Well, so another topic that came up when when I was thinking about this, when I was contemplating, what do I say about writer's block? Is there in what's going on in the brain? Um, something I stumbled upon is this idea of an incubation stage, and mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about this. Um, and there's a lot of self-reporting and, and some eh, antidotal evidence out there that this is important. And and there's some human research showing that an incubation stage is beneficial to creativity. Mm-hmm. And one thing I came across when I was looking at this, I remember the story about this guy, Kerry Mullis, who's now has a Nobel Prize. He invented PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which is this widely used um, biochemical assay. Um, it's used now in forensics, in, in, in just all over the place. And he was working on something else. It was similar to PCR, but he was, he, was, he was in the lab trying to figure out an essay how to improve the yield of a certain reaction. And he got out of the lab and he was driving on the highway California, in California and he just pulled over and basically the idea of PCR hit him, the, hmm. the necessary reaction. And it was, and that got me thinking about this incubation stage. So I'm trying to think, well, what's going on? Why is taking a break from a task important? How does that, is there anything going on in the brain that could be beneficial or happening? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I came across, I realized, you know, there's some research in animals models showing um, this, this phenomenon known as what's been termed replay. And this is some work done by Lauren Frank in, in UC San Francisco that showed in the hippocampus, um, there these, there's a specific neural activity that is observed in animals when they're learning a task. Hmm. And then this activity, what's interesting, this activity continues or is replayed when the animal stops performing the task. And then they went on to show that disrupting this activity during these idle periods may could um, also disrupt learning. The animal would just not behave as well as mm. the on the task later. So, you know, this is, again, this is animals. We obviously have to put a few asterisks here. But I think what this does demonstrate is there could be some important neuronal activity happening even when we're away from the task. Absolutely. That's important to us accomplishing our goals. Um, what's interesting to me in this is there's no way to ask the animals in the study, <laughs> like, were you thinking about what you were doing or was this just happening? So there's no way to know if the incubation stage, if we're consciously aware of this neuronal activity or if this is going on without us being aware. Yeah. You know, but if we could come up with a way to ask the mice and rats, you know, all right, are you thinking about the maze right now or is this happening independently of you thinking about it? But For sure. It's kind of a side note. Well, I think I found, um, you know, kind of uh, an early early reference to the incubation phase in um, this f kind of four-stage model of creativity from the 20s that uh, this social psychologist, Wallace, who's a British guy, was studying inventors and he came up with this four-stage model and the first stage was preparation second stage was incubation third stage was illumination and the fourth stage was verification and it confirms one piece of that puzzle obviously um going back to kind of the research um phase that that all writers initially have to do to kind of start putting information in there <laughs> yeah. but um you know you talked about this before actually in our creativity session you said you know, the more information you put in there, the bigger pool of ideas you'll have to pull from. And that means more opportunities to be creative. Right. Coming back to uh, kind yeah. of bringing it full circle to creativity. And your original point, you can apply that knowledge um, in a situation that you might be unfam unfamiliar with to kind of resolve an issue. Right. And, and some of that is happening subconsciously. So yeah. let me just go back to, well, there was a couple of things. I mean, I love kind of the idea of remix culture and uh, a couple guys, Kirby Ferguson and um, Austin Kleon talk a lot about these basic elements of creativity and that ability being able to copy, transform and combine elements into something new kind of fits into that same, you know, four phases of or the model of creativity. Right. And I want I want to pull out a clip from Austin Kleon's interview about writer's block. And I think I'll have Toby drop that in right here. I feel like writer's block is just exhaustion, laziness, or fear, or some, you know, combination of them. I also think that, like, I mean, a lot of times when I'm blocked, it's just that I don't want to sit down and write, you know? Mm -hmm. I just don't want to, because it's just not my favorite thing to do. I'm, just, You know, like, I would rather read. You know, Fran mm -hmm. Lebowitz, she's like, if you ever feel like writing, just lay down on the couch and read a bit. It'll pass. 
<laughs> you know, that's how I feel, yeah. you know, but, but for me, but I also think that, you know, people hit walls and I think a lot of times when I am just nothing's coming, that means that I haven't, I, the, when the output doesn't happen, that's cause the in, there's problems of input. Yeah. A lot of times problems of output are problems of input. And so if you don't have anything coming out, that means there's not good stuff going in. And so that could be anything from like, you need to take a trip or you need to just walk away from your desk or you need to like stare at a wall for a while or <laughs> read, you know, just something to kind of like get off, you know, get something jump started, you know. And so a lot of times with block, I'm just like, you know, some people try to power through block and I'm just like, eh, you know, go walk away for a bit. Cause it's always when, you know, everybody's had that experience. You're sure. in the shower or you're on a walk and that's when the juices start flowing and then just make sure that you have a, you know, with that said, I think you need a, um, you know, you need a time and place every day to, to do the work. Creativity is a messy process. I think there's this other book called wired to create, um, kind of examining the, the, the creative mind talking a lot about, um, how creatives are switching between these rapid thought process and to generate these new ideas, always working out an idea, uh, through critical reflection and considering, uh, you know, the perspective of the artist and the audience. So anyway, um, I think, God, I mean, there's just so much about, kind of input equals output right. that we could talk about and, and engaging our brains. Well, I think there's one more aspect too, and, and it's not just input and output, but there's also recall, right? So yeah. even if we have the information, we have to be able to access it. And I think that has a lot to do with writer's block. It's not just if we have the information or not. Of course, like I said, um, we can't access information if we don't have it. Yeah. But once we've developed a knowledge base. It's how do we access it? And I think that plays, that's a big issue in writer's block. And that's the one I was kind of interested in. And another important topic on that, I think, is, is emotional states. And yeah. this can influence greatly, I think, our ability to access information. Um, and we touched on this a little bit before, but um, you know, emotional states can have a profound effect on creativity and, and our productivity. Um, of course, there's, there's major bouts of depression and anxiety, um, and even if you want to consider narcissism, narcissism an emotional state, mm -hmm. that can go on for a long time, and those are kind of hard to touch on. And what I wanted to focus on are things we can do today, maybe, like help writers today and help avoid writer's block. Sure. And there can be also kind of minor walls we hit, minor bouts of depression and anxiety that we can possibly control. Um, so I, I started thinking about that and this, this idea of motivation and motivation learning and individuals being avoidance motivated or approach motivated, mm -hmm. meaning that do you go into a task thinking you're going to succeed, being optimistic, or are you, do you approach life kind of in fear when trying to avoid um, failure. You know, oh, I can't, that's something I can't accomplish. I'm not going to do that. And is there, and this has been shown, these, these kind of behaviors, avoidance motivated versus approach motivated, to affect an individual's productivity. Um, avoidance motivated 
avoidance motivation tends to lead to depression and anxiety and less productivity. And approach motivated is generally beneficial, but there are some downsides. You can be too optimistic. We've always, you know, we've heard too foolishly <laughs> optimistic. And this can kind of, you know, almost narcissistic behavior. And so I was thinking about that and, and you know, what's the neurological basis for this? And there's quite a bit. This is a huge field of research. Um, hmm. And it comes down to, a lot of it comes down to the neurotransmitter dopamine. Yeah. And this, so some work done in the late 90s by Wolfram Schultz and colleagues showed that in animal models, um, dopamine neurons in the area of the brain known as the striatum, which is kind of thought of as a reward center in the brain, um, were found, these neurons were found to burst fire in response to rewards, and they would decrease their firing rate or pause in firing if, if, a, if there was punishment, so if a reward wasn't received or was less than expected. Now, what's really interesting is that after the animals were trained, they would begin to expect a reward. And they started to see that the, the firing rate would change. So the animals' neurons would start to burst fire before they received the reward, just if they expected to. And mm. then the opposite was also seen. So they would start to perceive a punishment. Yeah. Now, why this is interesting is because now this is evidence that changes in neuronal activity may happen based on our perceived outcome of a situation, mm -hmm. right? So before we even know what's going to happen, we can almost affect how we proceed. So, you know, and this research is continuing, it's still going on. Um, so further research on this topic has kind of shown that an individual's perceived out outcome of a situation can influence how we perform on a task. So there's kind of something said to being optimistic mm -hmm. and pessimism, that you may actually be changing your performance on a task by thinking negati negatively, being avoidance-motivated like, yeah. versus approach-motivated. Um, so I think that, that can apply to writer's block and, and can be um, something writers can work on, people can work on to be more productive, is to try to be more approach-motivated. And there may be some tangible things we can do to help facilitate this. And I think one of these is kind of set some attainable goals and even small stuff. Um, yeah. You know, as you go through a project, just, all right, I want to get this much research done today. And your brain's going to reward you a little bit. Your brain's going to, all right, here's a little dopamine, six, you know, success, sure. way to go. Um, and this, this kind of getting in this pattern of positive thinking and, and accomplishment may, yeah, may help stave off writer's block. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard writers talk about this before. It is um, sometimes a matter of, and there are some famous examples of this, but you know, I've heard writers say, you know, I'll just set a small goal for myself, like 500 words. Right. And it, it's so attainable that often I will get to the end of the 500 words very quickly and then just keep going. Right. <laughs> right. I'll write a thousand, two thousand whatever that may be. But, but there is that negative, like kind of the death spiral of uh, writer's block that, that I could right. see happening because yeah. all of a sudden, once you've missed or you start, you give yourself too big of a goal, you know, right. um, and you miss it, then you kind of want to avoid it. And that avoidance right. motivation right. I could see work, you know, working yeah. against yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, so one is, you know, problem with writer's block. It can become this, can really snowball. So yeah, yeah. this deadline, all of a sudden, 
the anxiety builds, anxiety makes it harder to work and be productive. But then there's also the idea, you know, the, the problem with being approach motivated is you can set a goal that's too lofty and convince yourself you're going to be successful. And if we miss that goal, yep. then it can be a very dramatic um, yeah, and negative process. And also, I think this is important too, for managers to realize and supervisors, um, what kind of environment are they creating in their workplace and to think about, you know, some approach motivated goals and things like that and be sure to reward people when they do a good job and not just hang deadlines over their heads. That's really going to, you know, create an unhealthy environment. There's so much here. There's so much to talk about. How, so should we get, start to get into how do we resolve writer's block once it's actually set in? Yeah, I think, yeah, going over and thinking about what we just talked about and, and introducing some of these, these sort of behaviors back into your schedule help a lot. I think this incubation stage really comes up time and time again. We started our, uh, this podcast off by talking about Maria Konnikova's article in The New Yorker. Yeah. And, and she went back and looked at some of this early research on emotional states of the writer and how they helped defeat or overcome, writers overcome writer's block by using what they called directed mental imagery. And this is where the subjects would focus on a a creative project that was unrelated to the one they were working on for a period and then go back to their original work. Mm -hmm. And they they found some um, success with this approach. And I think the efficacy of this approach may be tied to that incubation period that we were discussing earlier. For sure. So if, if... Individuals are, are feeling blocked, maybe, you know, hitting a pause button is a good idea. Just take a step back, give yourself a moment. And then, as we were talking about earlier, it might be good to have another hobby, another task in your life to kind of divert your attention away for a while. So try focusing on something else for a little bit and then go back to the project that you were working on. 100% believe in that. And then back to the um, approach voided and avoidance motivated, I think if you, you are blocked, you know, just go back to the basics, just set some kind of basic goals for yourself. Um, just easy stuff you can accomplish to kind of get that ball rolling and get some confidence back too. Yeah. So that might be a good good uh, step to take if beginning to have writer's block set in. Yep. You know, I, I keep thinking that, and I, I'm thinking about um, another piece in the New York Times that was arguing that we, or at least the title of it was The End of Reflection, um, this piece by Teddy Wayne, where he talks about our compulsive obsession with checking social media and how we're plugged in all the time yeah. to smartphones and and the internet and how our brains begin to just get engaged all the time and uh you know, with the speed of high-speed internet and, and ease of use of all these different tools that we're using to constantly be plugged in, we're not really giving ourselves the opportunity to have that incubation phase. So some of those neuronal connections aren't being made. I, I don't know. I think it comes back to, you know, unplugging. And I think, um, you know, I was just thinking of a handful of things myself, um, like writing longhand in a notebook or on note cards, Right. Um, you know, instead of using a computer, which actually yeah. has been proven to be uh, more effective in learning. Okay. Um, 
reading a book, like a paper book, right? Couldn't hurt. I mean, I know that you can um, use an e-reader that's not connected to the internet, obviously, and those are effective too. But turning off your phone for a period, or using apps that block the internet, plenty of use, uh, plenty right. of uh, well-known writers do that. Um, taking yeah, this, a walk, taking a long walk yeah. in nature. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just get away for a bit. This, yeah, yeah this technology is internet and information technology is is evolving yeah so quickly yeah and it's really hard to predict what the outcome of this will be but you know we know as you said we have so much information available just at our fingertips that yeah we may not be able to we may not be giving ourselves the time we need to step away from these things and really give ourselves that incubation period and maybe we may be we might be missing some important important neuronal activity or not giving neuronal activity the time it needs to fully develop in these ideas and be productive. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. So um, you talked about mixing things up. Uh, yeah, I think that's another good way to get away, um, to give yourself an incubation pillar, to have something else to do. Yeah besides just this task and it's very easily to get I don't know, overrun on one task and our brain likes to yeah it likes activity it likes yeah. things to do um it likes surprises i guess a little bit yeah yeah well i mean a lot of writers also talk about the importance of changing venues or at least designating a a, a, a special place or a special computer for doing writing to increase their productivity. But it has been actually proven that uh, changing your surroundings to a place uh, where others are actually hard at work on their own projects has been proven to influence us um, and help us concentrate. It's actually literally contagious. Um, This study, which I'll link to, talked about how seeing other people in um, postures of exertion or um, working hard at a tat, you know, like in that kind of, or I don't know if it's their face or just being at a coffee shop. It's also been proven that the ambient sounds of the coffee shop are helpful to writers uh, or at least to productivity. And there's something scientific about uh, kind of, I don't know, the accountability of having a pair of eyes on you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, this this could be interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of things to talk about here, but one, we can link back to um, our discussion on empathy, and that could be part of it. You yeah. Know, that we tend to, our behaviors can be somewhat contagious, and we sort of mirror and mimic individuals around us, and yeah. they mimic us as well. Um, so that may be, an aspect to this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so being, and I think that again, speaking to supervisors, managers, this is something that they can think about and what kind of environment do they want to work in? What's the good environment for their productivity and yeah. what kind of people? And then also listening to the people they hire, you know, what do they need and to be productive and creating a culture that people can feed off each other. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it's not surprising that, yeah, venue is important. Venue is important. You know, also very interesting is kind of the, this idea of the solitude of the writer, because, you know, writing is a, is a very intimate, (laughs) private thing. Right. Um, And that's why a lot of writers kind of close themselves off in, uh, uh, you know, a writer's retreat or, you know, 
right. uh, a cabin in the mountains, but that's not always the best place <laughs> to right. get yeah, right into that. Again, I, I'll reference back to our talk about rhythms and different, how our brain activity changes over the course of a day. And, and yeah. yeah, certain aspects of the creative process are probably where more prone to a certain venue or, or more productive in a certain venue yeah. and a certain task, maybe you have to change venues. So doing sure. research versus writing may involve different, different environments. I love that. And I also do love working in a coffee shop, but there are times when I just can't work in a coffee shop when it's too distracting or, you know, I really need right. to, I really need flow. So I need quiet and no, no movement. They do actually have apps, uh, that have a coffee shop, <laughs> um, coffee shop soundtrack, which I I have used in the past, um, and can attest to. Admit a little coffee odor too. <laughs> no, but you but you could put a coffee a cup of coffee next to your desk okay. and just kind of waft it your way <laughs> uh, or drink it. So uh, anyway, I think there's so much here. Um, hopefully, we've we've offered some ideas for writers. You know the importance of the incubation phase, which, you know, allows your brain to do some of those subconscious, cool subconscious things. If you've ever had an aha moment in the shower or, you know, on a walk or on a bike ride, when you're not thinking about the, the work at hand, all of that kind of stuff. I wanted to go, I just wanted to touch on some tips from Ernest Hemingway, just to go back to like a, like a seminal, like writer and some of his advice that he, that were collected in uh, a book called Ernest Hemingway and writing where he just dropped some wisdom. And there, these are obviously not all weren't all in one place, um, but were collected from his letters. First one that he said was to, to get started, write one true sentence. And I think that kind of goes back to the kind of setting attainable goals. Yeah. Um, because, hey, look, you write one great sentence and everything kind of goes from there. So yeah. so you have a taste of success. You- yeah, yeah. And he was saying, I mean, I'll go back to, you know, just kind of general advice for writers, which, you know, going all, all the way full circle to the idea that, you know, the writer's brain can be compared to like a pro athlete's brain. Well, where does that come from? So much of that is from practice, right? From right. Um, repetition. And there's another great book called Around the Writer's Block by an author, Roseanne Bell, where she discusses that whole thing. I mean, she really gets into it, digs into it. But just to bring it back to Hemingway, she's she kind of drilling in the idea that, you know, you're training your brain through repetition and practice. And in order to write well, you have to write, period. <laughs> and to write, you've got to write badly. You kind of, you're always going to start out writing something crappy. So Hemingway's famous quote, of course, is I write one page of masterpiece for 91 pages of (laughs) and I try to put the in the wastebasket and that's where the editing process comes in, right? (laughs) That verification process. I love that. Anyway, uh, a couple others from Hemingway really quick. Always stop for the day while you still know what will happen next. Of course, that's a fiction thing, but kind of keeping that interest alive. The incubation thing he touches on, never think about a story when you're not working on it. Sure. Incubation. I mean, it was there. And then when it's time to work again, always start by reading what you've written so far. So you're kind of uh, firing up those, I guess, those neural pathways again. Uh, Accessing the information again. Yeah. yeah. Recall. And then he, he swore by using a pencil when he wasn't at the typewriter. And again, kind of that, that, um, handwriting to start out kind of may help uh, with, uh, 
acquiring knowledge and maybe a useful yeah. tool for memory and formation. Different works your brain yeah. a different way. Right. Okay. Well, to kind of wrap up here, you know, I think that writers need to find rituals and routines. I know this is a question I ask writers on the podcast quite often, you know, kind of do they have some psych up rituals to get them in the moon? Everyone is different. Everyone has different stuff. Some have right. none at all. I know in Twyla Tharp's book, uh, The Creative, Creative Habit, she talks a lot about how rituals eliminate doubt. And of course, I think that's probably part of part of what you touch on as well. Right. And I think like we were, we were saying, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of individual differences here based on people's history and, and yeah. yeah, find out what works best for you, the writer. And, and for sure. just because one writer thinks, right, defines writer's block as a certain thing and you don't agree with that, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, for copy blogger called eight strange rituals of productive writers. <laughs> and again, kind of like pro athletes, you know, these rituals, they don't have to be orthodox, which I'll get to. Um, they just have to be regular. And you just have to kind of build those muscles. Anyway, uh, George Orwell, Mark Twain, Edith Wharton, uh, Winston Churchill, all famous uh, for writing while they were lying down. <laughs> okay. You know? I've never tried it, but well, welcome <laughs> yeah, to the Yeah, show. why not? Right. Um, of course, uh, Charles Dickens and Henry Miller, both used to wander around Europe, uh, actually right. trying to get lost, and uh, <laughs> again trying to foster creativity by cha- changing their mindset. Yeah, um, a lot of writers will write with music on. This is something I touch on actually in the podcast. Um, and every writer has kind of a different uh, music. Uh, I know that uh, Stephen King likes to listen to rock music. Same with Austin Kleon, and uh, I prefer. Uh, actually ambient music, but okay. the productivity thing, again, touching back on the circadian rhythms, Balzac would get up at midnight and drink black coffee <laughs> well into the next day. Uh, Flannery O'Connor only wrote for two hours a day, and that seems like a pretty attainable uh, a goal. goal. Yeah. She was very, very prolific. Finally, uh, I think I'll wrap up with this one. Pulitzer Prize winning author John Cheever wrote mostly in his underwear. Okay. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure the that. neurological basis <laughs> or for that one. I'm, I'm going to leave that one untouched. Uh, okay. Think. All right. Um, yeah. We don't really know why. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Really uh, hey, he's just, he's just trying to just relax, be groovy, man. You know? Yeah. Hey, we have to leave, end on a cliffhanger, right? <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think we, we've covered a lot of good stuff. I think we've offered a lot of good, insights at least into what's happening inside the writer's brain as we try to do and i really appreciate you taking the time to enlighten us man oh this is fun these are interesting questions that i get to think about and i love it when you uh throw these my way yeah (laughs) really gets gets me thinking about things so i enjoy it thank you fantastic we'll come back and see us soon and we'll have uh, another um brain uh question for you great looking forward to it all right thanks michael all right thank you Thanks so much for joining us for a glimpse into the workings of the writer's brain. For more episodes of The Writer Files, or to simply leave us a comment or a question, drop by writerfiles.fm. You can always chat with me on Twitter, at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.